thinking about what God wants to do with the church overall and specifically how that applies to us here in Irving. And that's exciting to me to get to just uh, dream with you about, about the church. Today I just want to start at a, a very foundational level talking about who we are. That's very important to understand who we are. And I'll give you the simple answer to that question. I think you uh, already know this. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. But we want to dig into that today and about what does it really mean to be a disciple of Jesus. Any of you ever uh, read the book or, or uh, see the movie about this guy? His name's Aaron Ralston. He was hiking or, or, or mountain climbing and a boulder was dislodged, trapped his right arm and he couldn't move it. Stayed there for about five days and on the fifth day, uh, he, as he was aware there was no way he was getting out alive, he took out a dull pocket knife and managed to, first he broke his arm so that he didn't have to cut through the bone, it couldn't happen, and he managed to cut through his forearm and tourniquet it off so he didn't bleed to death and then free himself and rappel down the mountain with one arm and uh, made it to safety. Amazing, amazing story. Whenever I hear that story, for years now I've thought about that story and it's reminded me of Jesus' question to his disciples a long time ago. What would you give in exchange for your life? Or some translations have it, what would you give in exchange for your soul? It's basically the same thing. What would you give to save your life? You see, this guy, when he came to it, when it came down to the moment of, of I'm going to die, he said, I'd rather live without my arm. I'd give my arm to save my life. I, I would do the same thing if I could. I wouldn't have the skill to know how to do it, but uh, um, I, would, I would lose my arm to save my life. Most of us know what a precious thing life is. And we know the great value of it. What I want to say to you today is when we talk about discipleship, we're talking about saving our lives. Nothing less than that. The stakes could not be higher than what they are today when we talk about discipleship to Jesus. That's why Jesus was asking that question, what would you give in exchange for your life? We're going to see it in just a minute as we get into the text. Because he knew that people's lives were on the line when it came to him and his invitation. It's no different today. I'm afraid that the church, the world over, has been rocked to sleep by a lullaby faith. And we have heard the sound of this sweet music over and over to where we no longer are aware of who we are and the invitation that we have been given. We don't know any longer that we stand on the precipice of the ages that angels have longed to look into the things that we have been offered. That prophets prophesied and they didn't realize that they were prophesying about us. That the Messiah came and said, you come and follow me. The stakes could not be higher this morning than they are. 
Years ago, John Wesley gave a sermon. He called it the Almost Christian. And he talked about people who could live very decent lives. And yet their lives would not be infused with the love of God and the love of neighbor that comes from above. And he said, that's the almost Christian. More recently, a lady named Kendra Dean has written a book. She's a Princeton professor. She's written a book analyzing the faith of young people in our world. And she's found startling and disturbing results about young Christians. Some of you have seen this already. Let me put this up here for you. One out of 12 young people, that's 8% of young people, can be described as highly devoted to Jesus. That's looking at, at Christians today, according to studies that have been done. One out of 12. That's a very low number. If we're thinking about the call of Christ that's come to take over the world, you got a child? Well, that child has a one out of 12 chance of being highly devoted to Jesus. According to these stats, now I'm not trying to, to discourage us here. I think we can do better. But that, that's, that's what we're looking at here. And what, uh, th this term was not, not used by Dean, but she's drawing on another person here. What, what some people have used to describe the faith of young people today is moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic in the sense of, oh yeah, we know some moral rules like be nice, basically. Don't upset anybody, be friends with people. And, and our faith is therapeutic. It'll help us feel good about ourselves. God wants you to be happy. He wants you to be nice and he wants you to be happy. And basically he's pretty distant. That's the deism. He's out there somewhere, way away. But it's not the, the pressing engagement of your life. God, right there with you. That's not what we're dealing with. But here's what was even more disturbing about Dean's studies or, or, or the studies that she's drawing on when she wrote this book. Young people are not rejecting their faith today. Now, we've probably been through that time in history where people are very rebellious against faith. That's not, that's not what's happening today. Young people are not saying, oh, no, I don't want anything to do with the faith anymore. They're accepting it. They think it's basically a good thing. Yeah, be a Christian. Go to church. Go hang out with Christians. They've decided that it's benign, that it's harmless, and that it's basically a good thing to keep their faith. And in reality, what they're doing is, this is what Dean's book concludes, they're actually living out the faith that they are learning. In other words, this is the adult's faith that they are receiving. They are not rejecting their faith. They are reflecting their faith. They are reflecting what they're learning at church. Here's what she says. As a church, we are doing an exceedingly good job of teaching youth what we really believe, namely that Christianity is not a big deal, that God requires little, and the church is a helpful social institution filled with nice people focused primarily on folks like us which of course begs the question of whether we are really the church at all. And that nails it. Because when you have a church filled with people who think the main thing I'm supposed to do is be nice, get along, 
and leave God in the background, you have a question of whether or not we're really the church at all. This is what's before us today when we talk about Jesus, okay? I'm not trying to say this. This is what Jesus puts before us. And we'll see it in the Gospels here in just a minute. So I want to take you to, to Mark chapter 8. In light of this, this serious problem, something has gone badly wrong as we can tell. Let's see what Mark chapter 8 has to teach us. Now before we get into it, uh, let me tell you uh, the, the context Right before we get to Mark chapter 8 and verse 27, there's a little story there about Jesus healing a blind man. It's the only time in the Gospels where it looks like Jesus has a hard time. I'm not going to read that part to you. We're going to skip over it, but I'm just going to summarize it. Because he, he, he spits on this guy's eyes, places his hands on his eyes, and he says, can you see? And the guy says, well, I can kind of see. He says, I see people like trees walking around. It's the only time, only time in the Gospels where it takes Jesus two times. To do it. And then he said, okay, well, Jesus does, let me do this again. He does it again, the guy's eyes clear up and he can see. Now, Jesus does things that are a lot harder than that. He raises the dead. So I don't think that we're supposed to conclude that sometimes Jesus just had a hard time. At least the way Mark tells this story and where he puts it, it seems like he, he positioned, now I don't know all the historical reasons why that happened. Maybe God was just arranging it so that the story could be told like, like this. Uh, Mark puts it in his gospel in a way that prepares us to see a journey that disciples are on. Okay? And, and the disciples, if you follow through the first eight chapters of Mark, they're, they're figuring Jesus out. They're watching him do things nobody's ever done. They're like, wow, he just, the demons are scared of this guy. <laughs> Who is that? <laughs> We're out on the, the water and he just, he just told the wind to shut up and <laughs> the, the waves to be still. Who is this man? But it's also clear they haven't fully got it. And, and, and they're not yet clear on who he is. And it seems like this blind man is representative of these disciples who are coming to see, but they haven't yet seen clearly. They need another stage. They need another step in Jesus clearing up their eyes. Maybe that's where you are today. Maybe that's where some of us in this room are. We're at a place with Jesus and we need our eyes to be cleared up a little bit more. That's the journey of discipleship, gaining clarity. And so here, here's where we are in Mark chapter 8. Right after that story, we get to this climactic moment of, of the question that Jesus puts to his disciples. As they went on, let me just read the, read the point at the top there. We'll see this. Discipleship begins with clarity about Jesus. And as Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and he went on. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, why doesn't he just ask them who they think he is? He could have just skipped the first question, couldn't he? And gone straight to them. See, I think it's important, and Jesus knows it's important, that people, his people, are able to distinguish what they think about him from what other people think. And notice their answers. Who do people say that I am? Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Or as Matthew's version has it, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now please note that none of the previous answers were insults. John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the great prophets of old. 
I would take it as a compliment if anybody attributed any of those to me. Anybody else on earth would take it as a compliment if they understand right. To be called John the Baptist or Elijah, these men who did such great things. And yet it's not enough when we're talking about Jesus. Every other comparison falls short when we come to Jesus Christ. And we are left saying he is unlike anybody else you've ever known or seen. He is the Messiah. He's the son of the living God. John doesn't come close. Elijah doesn't come close. Stack all the prophets up on top of each other. They don't come close. He is the one. And that's what we believe in. Discipleship begins with, re with recognizing that and really believing it. So I want to pause here. I just want to ask you, what do you say about Jesus? Who do you say that he is? And I really want you to sit with that question because we have been urged in our churches over the years to profess things we don't really deeply believe. And maybe as part of social belonging, you have said, yeah, I accept that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Jesus, yeah, um, he's Messiah. Yeah. But if you don't really, really believe that, then it's going to determine how you live out your walk. And you're not going to be able to walk with Jesus like he wants you to walk with him. Do you believe that he's the one and nobody else has ever been like him? And if you don't believe that, are you willing to put yourself before him today and say, Lord, here, help my unbelief? Say, Lord, I want to see you like that. I'd like to believe more deeply and come to him asking for that kind of faith. Be real with yourself and be honest with yourself this morning about what you really believe. This is a safe place, by the way, to have struggles and doubts. It's okay if you don't have it all together yet. The worst thing we can do in our spiritual journey is be dishonest with ourselves. So be real about where you are this morning. Many people in our world today are saying things about Jesus. They'll say, well, he's a spiritual guru. He's a great teacher. He's a great prophet. But that's not who we say he is. And who we say he is determines the direction of our discipleship. Okay, look at the second point here. It's a crucified Messiah who sets the agenda for discipleship. Now, this is a crazy thing. Jesus has just acknowledged that he's the Messiah, the one they've been waiting for, and then he tells them things that blow their mind. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your, setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You know, we're quick to jump on Peter. We're quick to say, how could he do that? You know, I would never have rebuked Jesus. But you've got to understand where Peter's coming from there. He probably seems to be the most reasonable guy around at that time. He probably seems like he's doing something good. 
telling Jesus, no, I'll never let that happen to you. He, he is thinking this through from the perspective of somebody who understands what it means if the Messiah gets killed. That doesn't happen to the Messiah, to the one who's the king, the one who's going to rule the world. You don't kill him. And crucifixion, that wasn't a means to an end back then. That was the end. It wasn't like, oh, we, we get that and then we'll get somewhere else. That was the answer. It wasn't the trial. It was the verdict. It's over. Rome wins if they crucify you. You are shamed, degraded, tortured, and killed. That's what crucifixion said. And, and Peter can't get this, that the Jewish people are going to turn against their Messiah. Their leaders are going to turn against him. And he's going to be killed. If that's true... Everything has to be rethought. Everything has to be reconsidered. We have to reconceive what it means to be the people of God. Exactly. That's exactly what happened. But it was going to take a while before people were ready for that. See, Peter's objections are very understandable, but then Jesus uses some of the strongest language you'll read in the Gospels with him. Get behind me, Satan. Why would he respond so painfully, so seemingly almost aggressively to Peter, uh, given Peter's question? It's because many times, and Jesus knew this, many times, it is some good desire, some very reasonable concern that keeps us from doing what God calls us to. Have you ever considered that some of our good reasons might be from Satan? Particularly, we're good at rationalizing a discipleship without a cross. A discipleship that cost us nothing. That's what Peter wanted. Peter wanted to be able to have this discipleship with Jesus and it just be a smooth ride to glory. That's what he was expecting now that they knew they were with Jesus. And yet that is not what Jesus was offering. And see, if he was going to go the way of death, everybody had to get on board with that too. And that leads us into the third point, the final point here. Discipleship is a matter of life and death. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Deny yourself. You know, we think of self-denial. I think sometimes today, watered down, we think of it kind of like self-discipline. I go on a diet. I've got to practice self-denial. There's a degree of truth in that. But that's not what Jesus is calling us to here. Think about what denial is. It's the same thing that Peter did a few chapters later with Jesus. Remember that? You're one of his disciples. I don't know the man. 
I've never seen him before. What are you talking about? Denying Jesus like that. That's how we deny ourselves. Self-denial is a renouncing of the self and its rights. And this goes deeper than even denying family or denying friends or denying co-workers. It looks straight at ourself. It says self cannot have the central place in the life of discipleship. We must deny ourselves and take up the cross. When we say we want to be a church of disciples, do you know what that means? Do you know what it means to have Jesus call us into a life of discipleship? It means you cannot have your normal life anymore. You cannot go on with life as usual and sprinkle Jesus into it. Jesus cannot be an accessory to our life that we're living according to normal worldly standards. Nominal Christianity, Christianity that's just in name, Christianity that's just a social club, a Christianity that's just this activity that we put on the side of our lives, that has to die. And Jesus has to take up residence at the center of our lives. The call to follow Christ is a call to take up our cross. It's not to take up a cause. It's not to take up a set of beliefs or a set of church practices, but it's to take up a cross. It's to fall in line with Jesus. For some people, this would have meant literally getting ready to die. In fact, depending on when you date the Gospel of Mark, this may have come to them not long before Nero's persecution. When these people who received this message from Jesus had to do exactly what he was talking about. But he's not just talking about martyrdom, obviously. This is a text for all disciples at all times, and most disciples don't die as martyrs. But it is clearly a call to death. It's a call to put our life on the line with Jesus. And say, I'll go with you. No more me. No more self-referential life. Where everything centers on me. Getting my desires met. Getting my needs met. Having people fulfill me. And then sprinkling church in, sprinkling Jesus in with all of that. That's not it. That's not the disciple's life. Discipleship starts with death. And this is what's on the line when Jesus comes to town. Are you with me? Are you, are you with me, Jesus says to the people, for his death? We die to ourselves. If we're going to be a church of disciples, we die to being a church that's centered on selfish concerns. How do we get more numbers? How do we show more success? No, how do we walk with Jesus? Where is he taking us? Please notice that it says, verse 35, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. This is the paradox at the heart of discipleship, but I want you to, 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 
to make note of this and recognize the significance of what Jesus is saying. Jesus wants to give us life. Jesus wants us to, to find life and, and to find it abundantly. That's what he tells us. I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. And so when we lose our lives, we're losing it to find our life. It's a different kind of life. It's a life that comes from God. It's a different quality of life. We've got to remember this in context of what Jesus says in other places. For example, with the parable of the treasure that's hidden in the field. You remember that parable? A man finds this treasure hidden in a field. And so he goes and he sells everything that he has. He sells everything he has so that he can go buy that field and have that treasure. But it's because of the exceeding joy that he has in having this treasure. Yes, it cost him everything. But at the same time, it gives him everything. It gives him something greater and more beautiful and more wonderful than he could have ever had elsewhere or otherwise. That's the invitation of Jesus. When he calls us to lose our lives, he calls us to find real life. Jesus doesn't come to place unbearable burdens on us. This is the paradox. If you just go around seeking to save your life, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep living my life to get money, to get people's approval, to get pleasure out of life. I'm going to keep grabbing all I can. You are losing your life. And you're clinging to it. You think you're holding on to it, but you're actually losing your life. When you say, okay, I'm going to die to all these things that govern so much of the world's actions, I'm ready to be on the cross. And a lot of times you won't be able to see beyond the first step. Right there before you, sometimes it just looks like death. But you say, okay, I'm going to die right here. You step through that death and you find life's on the other side. This is the way it is with Jesus. Our whole faith centers on death and resurrection. He went to the cross. The crucified Messiah set the agenda. He set the direction for discipleship for everyone else. And he found resurrection on the other side. We go to the cross and we find resurrection on the other side as well. We lose our life and we find our life. but it's a life unlike what you can get anywhere else. Last passage, last a bit of this passage. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? Now just think about this. This is good reasoning here. What profit have you made if you gain everything in the whole world and yet you're not alive? Not much there, is it? For what can a man give in return for his life? What would you give in exchange for your life? If you have some precious jewel, some family heirloom, but you're going to die, would you trade that in to live? Yeah, that just makes good sense, right? We know that we would, we would exchange. Nothing's more valuable than life. We, we understand that this all makes good sense, but do we really believe that that's what's at stake with Jesus? 
Life eternal. Yes. Life right now. Right where we are. Life that comes from above. A new birth. What do you have right now that's more important to you than saving your life? What is it you would rather do than find the kind of life that Jesus comes to give? Do you understand that when Jesus calls us to discipleship, as uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said a long time ago, when Christ calls a person, he bids him come and die. Do you understand that that's what's at stake when Jesus calls us into discipleship? Do you understand that today, here in this room, what we're talking about is life and death? And the good news is that Jesus wants to give us life. But it's not a life you can just sprinkle in on the side. It's not a life that you can find by making Jesus a kind of accessory to your life. Letting him tag along on the outside while you live the way you've always lived. It's a life that says, all right, here I am with you, Lord. Do what you will with me. But you're going to be everything. Even if it means I die. Physically, even if it means I die. I'm yours. Now you come and do what you want to do with me. When, when do we die? Have you died with Jesus? Have you said, to the extent that I'm able, right now, in my heart, Lord, I want to die with you. And I want you to take up residence, and I want to find the life that's really life, the life that is abundant. See, this is the same Jesus who said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and, uh, upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly at heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. That's the same thing we're talking about. <laughs> It's a paradox. It's an invitation into rest, into love, into goodness, into life. But that invitation comes by stepping through death and saying, I'm putting myself on the line with Jesus. Are you there today? The question before us as a church is not so much, well, what kind of church do we want to be? Or what can we do to, to grow more, to be better? The question before us is, do we want to live? And are we prepared to go with Jesus to live? As we come to the table this morning, we realize that our Messiah, our Lord, is the one who set the pathway for us. This all started with him giving his life. And we're invited this morning to come to the one who gave everything and to give ourselves in a fresh way to him. 
and as we do so, to receive life from him. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for the great privilege we have to be called to follow Jesus. Teach us what it means to die so that we can live. Lord, whatever it means, whatever door we need to step through today, help us to step through it to find the life that is truly life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Luke.